0: You know how dandelion in Vermont comes up in May, and the fields are all surrounding the roads that you're driving down or biking down or walking down? Glistening in yellow, and those were the dandelions. And Adele had a particular affection for dandelion.
1: Suzanne Richman teaches at the Institute for Social Ecology at Goddard College. In the 1980s, she befriended the herbalist and writer, Adele
0: Dawson, who lived nearby in Marshfield. So if we were to visit her in in May or early June, she'd send us out in the backyard and have us pick off the heads of the dandelion, bring in a giant pile of them, and then dip the heads in milk, then dip the milky dandelion heads in cornmeal, and then she'd fry those up in a big cast iron skillet, and it was dandelion fritters. and you would feel like you had gone to the most exquisite restaurant and no one else in the world could possibly make anything this magical. There's such an abundance of these dandelions in spring all over Vermont, and we can eat them.
1: The dandelion fritters were delicious, but they served another purpose.
0: The dandelion roots she would use for helping to heal the liver and the dandelion leaves she would use if i recall for helping the kidneys so all parts of the plant were useful to to adele and she would teach about all parts of the plant
1: the history of vermonters using plant-based medicines goes back long before this area was called vermont before europeans came to the land of the abenaki herbalists like adele dawson were aware of this legacy
0: until the late 1800s early 1900s plant medicines were the main way apothecaries helped humans Um, and Adele understood that history and she still had her foot in that historical world so I think Adele's idea was that I'm not going to be obedient to laws which inhibit people having access to the plants that heal those plants which grow in everybody's backyard
1: this is before your time presented by the vermont historical society and vermont humanities i'm your host lovejoy every episode we go inside the stacks at the vermont historical society to take a look at an object from their permanent collection that tells us something unique about our state. Then we take a closer look at the people, the events, or the ideas that surround each artifact. Today we'll examine the history of alternative medicine in Vermont, beginning with patent cures from the 1800s. We'll learn about some Vermonters who made or promoted herbal treatments, and we'll examine how the legacies of some healers and questions about their remedies live on today. But first, we'll drop by the Vermont Historical Society where Amanda Gustin and Mary Rogstad are looking at some old medicine bottles. Two of myrrh, one of capsicum, one quarter of sanguinary. These are the ingredients listed for Bancroft's vegetable liniment. Amanda reads the instructions.
2: Okay, dose. From 10 drops
1: to a teaspoonful at time. That's a pretty wide range.
2: Yeah. Next. East India yeah.
1: liniment. Internal use. Take from one half to one
0: teaspoonful in sugar and water once in two hours. So it's not poisonous. Uh, well <laughs> <laughs> They don't think it's poisonous. Okay,
2: here we
1: go. The historical society has hundreds of these bottles. While most are empty, some of them are still unopened and full.
2: In this one group that were given in 1997, there were 107. 107, from one donor? From one donor, pharmaceutical and druggist bottles.
1: It can seem like every town in Vermont had a pharmacist brewing their own special blend of medicine. This East India liniment was manufactured in Bradford.
2: How do you think Dr. Haskins from Bradford, Vermont came across a cure originally used in East India? I have strong suspicion he was making this up. He very well could have? I don't want to, like, but, yeah. cast aspersions on his good name,
1: but but... Some of the cures that filled these little bottles from the 19th and early 20th century were derived from herbal folk remedies. Others were created from a lot of alcohol, some food coloring, and a pinch of carefully honed hokum. Surprisingly, the same medicines were sometimes used on both animals and humans. Take Kendall's Spavin' Cure from the 1870s.
3: Dear sir, about a year ago I fell in the road to some ice and was badly hurt in the hip joint, which caused me much suffering. I tried various remedies, but none gave relief until I tried your Kendall Spavin' Cure. I applied it full strength twice a day for about two weeks during last October, and it affected a perfect cure. I have since then been well and free from lameness. It is very valuable for men as well as beasts.
2: So spavin is basically just lameness of the hawk in the horse.
1: Allison Cornwall is a veterinarian in central Vermont. In addition to her daily practice, she's passionate about veterinary history. Today, most horses are kept as pets and not used for work or
2: transportation. 150 years ago, that was not the case, and they had to do a job to, to live, to stay there, and they can't do it, they have to recover for six months, well, that's a pretty significant problem for that animal and that owner. So lameness was a really, really big deal.
1: Dr. Bernie James Kendall graduated from the University of Vermont Medical School. He began marketing his cure for spavin in horses in the early 1870s.
3: This is to certify that I've used your Kendall's Spavin Cure on a valuable horse belonging to my father. And after applying it according to directions, only two weeks completed a perfect cure of a very bad Spavin. The horse is well and has not been lame since. I advise all who use horses affected in like manner to use it. Thomas B. Underhill, Apothecary.
1: Kendall's Spavin Cure became so popular by the next decade that Kendall built a huge facility to manufacture it in Enosburg Falls. He advertised it widely and shipped thousands of bottles across the United States. The sales meant a lot to Enosburg Falls. The factory had about 50 employees in a town of 2,000 people. When the company installed a modern plumbing system in the 1890s, the town upgraded as well, and Kendall largely paid for the 600-seat Enosburg Opera House.
3: Dear sir, we take great pleasure in stating to you that the sale of your Kendall Spavin Cure has been without exception the most satisfactory of any horse liniment we have ever kept in our stock. We have sold it to many of the best horsemen in our city and they tell us all freely that it does the work to their entire satisfaction.
1: But what was in the medicine? And once the owner had rubbed it on the horse's hawk, did it actually work?
2: I think my guess is that this Spavin cure was probably half alcohol and probably a lot of opium. And some opium compound, compounds definitely do cross the skin, so I'm wondering if they weren't getting some local opium effect.
1: Today, we give more medicines orally or by injection, a more efficient way to get the drug inside the body instead of a topical application. Allison thinks that Kendall's spavin cure was probably mostly harmless or even a little bit helpful, but many other veterinary cures were
2: not. So mercury was really common to be, for instance, in in horses they would use it as a counter irritant. Mercury, lead, (laughs) um, arsenic, all these heavy metal compounds were really common. Strychnine was sometimes used, so things that we consider deeply toxic today were used in small quantities hoping to get a beneficial effect without the toxic effect. Kendall eventually started
1: marketing his spavin cure to humans as well. It's impossible to say whether he believed wholeheartedly that he had discovered a cure, or whether he knew that he was selling
2: snake oil. I feel like people have always tried really hard, and they've always used, you know, made the best decisions they can. And then at the same time, I can look in a horse magazine today, or any animal-related journal, and I can find products that are complete bollocks. They're total garbage. I get, I try to put it in the lens of what would somebody think of me 200 years from now, looking back, treating things the way that I treat them, and here I am thinking earnestly that I am doing the right, you know, I'm doing right by this animal and right by this client and maybe by somebody else's measure, especially with some distance of time, that might be totally different.
4: When he came to Barrie, he didn't have a car. In fact, Jarvis never drove. Uh, He used a horse and buggy, and he would go out into countryside and visit farmers. And he would always wonder what they had been doing to treat the maladies that they were uh, suffering from. And he started collecting their home remedies.
1: Paul Heller has written two books called Granite City Tales, about Barry's history. He's talking about DeForest Clinton Jarvis, also known as D.C. Jarvis. Jarvis was a general practice family doctor who had grown up in Burlington. He graduated from the UVM Medical School before coming to Barry in the 1940s. He soon became interested in the local farmers, or more specifically, in their cupboards and pantries.
4: Apple cider vinegar was a common thing to be found in most farm pantries, as well as honey. And so uh, uh, those were often used as uh, remedies. And he believed that the combination of the acid and the vinegar and the alkaline and the honey produced beneficial results. In fact, Jarvis called this mixture honeygar and this is tried by me and whenever i have a sore throat i use this remedy and it cures my sore throat in one day and i'm somebody who suffered mightily from strep throats growing up but they're no trouble anymore because I have Dr. Jarvis's uh, remedy. It's in his book, Folk Medicine, if, if anyone's interested.
1: In addition to the local farmers, Jarvis was well-known among Barry's granite workers.
4: If you worked in a stone shed or in the quarry, you were forever getting chips of granite in your eye. And the man you wanted to take it out uh, to remove it was Dr. Jarvis, because he had rock-steady hands. Jarvis
1: became the trainer for the Spalding High School football team. And when they took
4: a timeout, he'd run onto the field and hand everybody a tongue depressor and then pull out a big container of honey and had them all take a big gob of honey and eat it to replenish their energy.
1: Jarvis specialized in eye, ear, nose, and throat problems. He became a pioneer in the diagnosis and treatment of silicosis a disease that affected granite workers who breathed in fine dust all day. He was also part of a national network of doctors interested in folk remedies.
4: It's quite likely that a lot of the, the uh, material he collected and published in folk medicine was not from central Vermont, but from one of his
1: colleagues out in the field. The full title of Jarvis's collection of remedies was Folk Medicine. A Vermont Doctor's Guide to Good Health. It was published in 1958.
4: Amazingly, it received terrible reviews. People, uh, even Vermont folklore people, said, oh, this is ridiculous. Uh, Somebody at the Harvard Medical School said, I hope they put it on the fiction shelf. You know, um, it was just sneered at. But the public disagreed. They loved it.
1: Folk Medicine sold over a million copies and is still in print today. It even found fans among movie stars.
4: Uh, Gloria Swanson bought cases of the book to give to her friends. There was a photo uh, spread about Jarvis and Barry in Life magazine. You couldn't get more national or mainstream than that.
1: The book was published at a pivotal time in American history as we were transitioning from being a rural nation to becoming an urban nation.
4: Boy, you know it puzzles me why that book was so popular because um, it was published in 1958 and this was post-war america everybody was looking to the future not you know th- these were folk remedies that their parents and grandparents would have used uh, there were doctors i think who who said my god we have you know we've progressed millennia since since uh, people use these remedies and they were a little ticked off by it but I think it made people feel better and um, made their lives better and it was a great link to tradition in the past
0: I'm Suzanne Richmond and I moved to Plainfield in 1984 from the Ozarks. And I met Adele Dawson that first summer of being in the outback of Vermont. So my first impression was she was a tiny little, um, little bodied person with a huge personality. I and mean, she would drive in her little car, and the lore was that you couldn't see that there was a driver it was like a headless car because she was so tiny her head would hardly peek over the steering wheel. Adele Dawson recorded her knowledge about
1: plants in a series of books. Her way of learning about the world and then sharing that knowledge inspired an entire generation of Vermont herbalists.
0: She would uh, immediately warmly welcome you into her house and she would Serve you up a, a teapot full of tea and talk with you or um, at you about whatever was on her mind until she was done. She would pour it out just like she was pouring her tea out. Wally Hubbard
1: from the Vermont Historical Society recorded an interview with Adele in 1973. They sat in her kitchen and Adele described coming to Vermont later in her life. Oh See, when I came to Vermont, my friends in Connecticut said, Dale, you're mad, you're absolutely out of your head. Well, you can't go in that area of Vermont, way up north there, you don't know anybody. Well, it wasn't true. (laughs) Everybody has just been marvelous. And really, I think that Vermonters accept you if you're yourself. I don't think you can put anything over on them. I think if I had come here and tried to tell them how to do things instead of learn the way they did things, it might have been a different story. Like Dr. Jarvis in Barry, Adele learned from the Vermonters around her. But she also paid careful attention to the natural world outside her door.
0: She would come to know the plants that grew in the giant terraces of her hillside by noticing which ones popped up according to which seasons, which months. She wanted to capture what she saw, and it was natural for her to write a book that was oriented around the seasons, because that's how she paid attention to the world. Adele's most famous
1: book, called Herbs, Partners in Life, was published in 1991, but she also shared her knowledge one person at a time, one cup of
0: tea at a time. So she would grab anybody by the scruff of the neck, teach them what she could by touring them around through the, the the, magical growing medium of her terraced hillside. And she would turn her students into teachers as quickly as possible. And that is something we need to treasure about our memory of Adele, that she would empower people so that the knowing about plants would live on long after she was gone. In
1: addition to being a writer, Adele was also an accomplished painter. In time, her garden became a destination. Uh, I consider myself a a, a liver. (laughs) You know, uh, not something to eat, but, but one who enjoys living more than anything. And I particularly enjoy painting, and
0: wood carving, and organic gardening, and walking in the woods, and swimming, and outdoor things, and and people, I guess, more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. And I love having them just romp through here all of Everybody has their truth. And I think Adele had her truth for certain. And her truth was, the plants heal. And I'm going to see to it that I can educate everybody I know, and even those I don't know through my book,
1: Before Your Time is presented by Vermont Humanities and the Vermont Historical Society. This episode was produced by Amanda Gustin, Eileen Corcoran, Ryan Newswanger, and Abra Claussen. Thanks to our guests, Mary LeBate-Rogstad, Allison Cornwall, Paul Heller, and Suzanne Richman. Thanks also to Jason Broughton for voicing the Kendall Spavin Cure testimonials, and to Marjorie Strong for research help. Visit our website, beforeyourtime.org, to find photos and other materials related to this episode. Thanks for listening, and for telling your friends about Before Your Time.